And now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a number of years ago, uh, Becky and I went through what was called an assessment with the CGC Church Planting Network. It was essentially a three-day grueling interview to see if we had what it takes to be church planters. And during this assessment, uh, there are many activities. One of them was to come up with a family motto. So on that day, we chose an old South African, Afrikaans saying, in Burmaka plant. <laughs> Does anybody know what that means? <laughs> we have one who might. In Burmaka plant. So that means, uh, the translation is, a farmer makes a plan, which uh, I understand isn't entirely self-explanatory. Um, but it basically falls in line with other similar approaches to life, like, there are no problems, only solutions waiting to be found, or better yet, where there's a will, there's a way. And these are definitely words that I used to live by. Uh, essentially, I used to believe if you want to do something and you're willing to try enough, hard enough, you can always find a way to make it happen. And there was definitely a time in my life where that seemed to work for most things that I tried. Now, I would always pray as well that God would be with me and help me. And I always remembered to throw in the caveat, not my will, but your will be done. And I tried to mean it. Of course, uh, I was also always hoping that God's will would be the same as mine. <laughs> However, there, there have uh, been times when God's will hasn't been the same as mine. And this uh, is especially the case in ministry where the prayer for God's will, for God's guidance and direction, has been more wholehearted, because it, it has to be. But that also means that there, I haven't always been able to just make things happen, uh, just from willpower. But that also means that I haven't always gotten what I wanted. And just one example from many years ago was when I interviewed for a full-time position at a church on the mainland as a children's minister. Now I thought because I had experience in both ministry and teaching, and I was also going through some seminary education, that I made a good candidate. And I was right. Uh, so I went through quite a few rounds of interviews. I ended up being one of the two finalists uh, for, the, for the position, but in the end, they chose neither of us. Which, yeah, it's way worse than, <laughs> than just being told someone else is a better fit. So when they called to explain why I wasn't chosen, they said that they wanted to affirm my calling to ministry, but they didn't feel I was being called to work with children. Now, at the time, I was teaching grade 7 at PCS, and so, feeling a little bit disappointed, I let slip a little facetiously, well, what should I tell my students on Monday then? <laughs> should I tell them you think I should quit? And, uh, 
Now, that was kind of clever, but I immediately regretted it. Um, <laughs> and thankfully, we had some time to sort of save the conversation and uh, to leave on good terms. But I was still disappointed and upset at that comment because I only heard the bit I didn't like and I then incorrectly overinterpreted it. I felt they were telling me I wasn't any good at working with kids. And that didn't make sense to me because the, at the time I was teaching, I was, I thought, doing a good job at it and uh, I thought that that was what I was meant to be doing. It was what I had been doing for 10 years. But by focusing on the bit I didn't like, I glossed over something important in what they said. Because it turns out this prayerful, spiritually mature, wise selection committee was right. God was calling me to ministry, but not to children's ministry. And it was just three months later that I was appointed to a position as a pastoral apprentice at Church of the Ascension in Langley. And I did end up leaving my teaching position at PCS. Not because I wanted to, not at all, but because I was following God's will. And God has led me on the journey in pastoral ministry and has brought me here to serve as rector at Open Gate Church. And thankfully, in his goodness, God has also still given me the opportunity to spend some time ministering to the kids as well. Helmut Thielicke writes, we know very little about our real needs. So often we pray for foolish things when what we need is something totally different. We're naked and instead of praying for clothing, we pray for candy. We're imprisoned and instead of praying for freedom, we pray for a Persian rug for ourselves. We don't always know what we need. And so just making things we want to happen happen by sheer willpower isn't always what's best for us. But God does know our needs. He does know what's best for us. And so when we pray for his guidance, his direction, his will, it should never be just as a caveat, just because as we talked about with the kids this morning and as many of us were also taught as kids, we remember that praying for God's will is what Jesus did in the garden in Gethsemane, and so we should do the same. Instead, when we pray for God's guidance, his direction, his will, we should do so remembering that God's will isn't always the same as ours. But it is good, and it is what is best for us. But that still leaves us with the question, what is the will of God. How can we, mere mortals, presume to know the will of the omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent creator and ruler of the universe? How can we presume to know the will of God? And as we come today to the third petition of the Lord's Prayer in which Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done, on earth as in heaven, for what are we asking? As we concluded our series on the Beatitudes, Jesus' 
introduction to his first public address, also known as the Sermon on the Mount, we recognized at the end of that that Jesus taught us to pray that the life of heaven, the life of the place where God's will is already done, would become the life we experience here on earth, the life of the whole world, that he would return our upside-down world right-side-up again. And this has brought us to the prayer that Jesus taught us in the same public address, the prayer that it's come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. Last week we looked at the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. And we reflected on how praying for this intentionally, not wholeheartedly, or not offhandedly, can be scary. Because we may not really want to submit to the will of our king, or really want the world to change to the point that it may become almost unrecognizable. But we reflected on how that's only scary if we don't trust God and don't trust that his will is good, that he knows what's best and that his way is better than anything we can plan or or imagine without him. When we pray that God would turn the upside-down world right-side-up again, it's because we're praying that he would take what is wrong and make it right again, that he would reverse the effects of the fall of humanity and return the world to the way he intended it to be. And the good news for us is that we don't have to try to imagine for ourselves what this might look like. We can see evidence of the kingdom of God with our own eyes, in our own lives. Because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven on earth, as it is in heaven, has already come. It's already been inaugurated through the life and teaching and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has already begun to turn the upside-down world right side up. And we see evidence of this through the work of Jesus' followers over the last 20 centuries, as the good news about Jesus has spread across the world. Dignity and rights for women, the abolishment of slavery, aid for the poor and sick throughout the world, just to name a few examples. However, last week we also reflected on how Jesus also teaches us that the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven has not yet fully come, that it's a progressive establishment. And so Jesus teaches us that praying for its final, ultimate establishment should be a constant concern for disciples. And so Jesus teaches us to pray that God's kingdom would come, and that God's will would be done on earth as in heaven. And we've taken a little bit of time reminding ourselves of what we talked about last week because the second and third petitions of the Lord's Prayer are so closely connected. The petition, your will be done, can also apply to both God's will in the world today and God's ultimate purpose for the world in the days yet to come. So just like the second petition, the third petition is also a prayer for now and a prayer for the future for the already and the not yet. 
when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which leads us back to the question, what is the will of God? How can we presume to know what God wants? Well, the word will is translated from the original Greek word, the lemma. And this particular Greek word in its context means a sovereign decree or the behest of a ruler, a king. It also means a purpose, a design, a plan. And it also carries with it the meaning of will as in a volition or inclination or a desire or pleasure. So the will of God is the decree of our sovereign king as it has to do with his plan, his intended purpose, the original design of our creator. And it is his desire and his pleasure that his people do his will. So that's what's meant by will, but we still haven't answered the question, what is this will? What does God want us to do? How can we presume to know? In our reading from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul explains that God has made the mystery of his will known to us. And he's done so through his word to us, through scripture, throughout scripture. The whole of scripture is a revelation of the will of God. And this should come as no surprise to us, as since the fall we've been studying this will. It's outlined for us in the Ten Commandments. It's further expounded upon in the Beatitudes. These are not just a list of rules or impossible expectations. They're a description of God's character and a description of what he desires his people to look like as they allow him to transform them, to reflect him. This is God's will. Paul also explains that we see God's will and purpose further set forth in Christ, culminated in the incarnation and life of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Just as Jesus' purpose was to glorify the name of God, throughout his entire life, Jesus also reveals the will of God by seeking it and following it. And we see that he did this even at an early age. In the Gospel according to Luke, we read how at the age of 12, Jesus' parents lost him. They searched everywhere until after three days they found him in the temple. And understandably upset, they asked Jesus, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And I know we sometimes have that translated for us as in my father's house, but in some texts it is about my father's business. Even at this early age, Jesus knew that his purpose was the purpose of his father in heaven. And the gospel according to John in chapter 4 also shares that one day when the disciples were worried that Jesus wasn't getting enough to eat, do you sometimes care about him? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Jesus lives his whole life in obedience to his Father's will. And this means that Jesus himself embodies what the will of God is all about. And we see the perfect example of this in what is perhaps the most well-known example of this in the story that we, we talked about with our kids today. When Jesus provides for us an example of what praying for the will of God looks like. As we heard in our gospel reading from Matthew 26, as Jesus entered the garden in Gethsemane, he knew that the moment had come that he was about to accomplish the culmination of his life's mission. But he also knew how excruciatingly difficult it was going to be. So we can only imagine from a human standpoint the temptation that Jesus may have had to pray to his father, remove this cup, save me from this suffering. Not your will, but mine be done. Please, just this one time. It's certainly a prayer many of us have maybe made. But instead we see Jesus fell on his face in a posture of total submission and humility and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but yours be done. And this submission to God's will isn't just a caveat, it isn't a posture, it isn't lip service. Jesus wholeheartedly put his life into his Father's hands in complete honesty, in complete surrender to the will of God. This is the example that Jesus set for us. This is the embodiment of God's will. And God's will for us is that we do the same, that we walk in Jesus' footsteps, that we pick up our cross and follow him. This is what we're praying when we pray, your will be done. As our friend Daryl Johnson reminds us, that much like the first two petitions, when we pray, your will be done, the third petition isn't, let us do your will on earth as it is in heaven, nor is it give us the power so we can do your will for you. Again, we remind ourselves that the prayer is to our Father in heaven, and we're asking him that his will would be done. We're asking him to do what only he can do. So the question we then ask ourselves isn't, how can we accomplish God's will? The question is, how does God accomplish his will? But the answer is that he does do it largely through his people, through those who are willing to obey his will, the will that he's revealed to us in Scripture and through Jesus. We do have a role to play. So while we remember and recognize that the will of God will be expressed in its fullness only when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. And while we recognize that God is the one who will accomplish this, the prayer that God's will would be done isn't passive. We're not just resigning ourselves to sit back and watch it all unfold. We have a role to play. And while from a 
philosophical standpoint, the answer to the question, how can we mere mortals presume to know the will of God, may seem daunting, may seem impossible to answer. From a biblical standpoint, the answer to this question is simple. God has already revealed his will to us. He's already answered the question time and time again in Scripture and ultimately through Jesus. And we've seen as we've looked at the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes and now the Lord's Prayer that God is consistent. That all of these revelations of God's character and will follow the same formula, the same structure, the same outline, the same intentional sequential order of priority. And this consistent outline is perfectly and very simply summarized by Jesus, by God with us himself, in his own summary of the law, his summary of scripture. Jesus summarizes God's will as love God and love your neighbor. Yeah, we've spent all this time coming to that very simple conclusion. God's will is love God and love your neighbor. So when we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that the will of God would be perfectly experienced here on earth, just as it is perfectly experienced in heaven. When we pray for God to do his will, we can do so knowing that God loves us and that God knows what's best for us. We can also do so knowing that God wants to bless us, but that that blessing may not always be what we want. It may not always be easy. We can also do so knowing that this prayer isn't all about us. That in turn, God also wants us to be a blessing to others. This is what we mean when we pray, your will be done, not my will, but your will be done. And when we pray this, we can do so remembering that where there's a will, there's a way. Especially when that will is the will of God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed your will to us. We thank you that this isn't some difficult question we need to find the answer to. That you have revealed yourself and your will to us through your word and through your word made flesh. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And we thank you that you've taught us to remember that our prayers aren't just about us. They aren't just about the things that we want. You've taught us that you should always be the center. And you've also taught us to remember to love you and to love our neighbors just as ourselves. But we also thank you, Lord, that you have promised that we can come to you when we are in need. As the words of St. John Chrysostom remind us, Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications to you. And you've promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will grant their requests. 
And so today we pray that you would fulfill our desires and our petitions as may be best for us. Granting us in this world knowledge of your truth and in the age to come, life everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.